We're going to be in Second Chronicles 29. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness to us, and we just thank you now as we study uh, King Hezekiah. We ask that you'd help us to see the insights that you have for us in, in your word. And Lord, we ask that you'd uh, help us to make these things applicable, to see the reality of how that fits and works in our own lives. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. I know that last week I said that I was uh, hoping to spend a week with Hezekiah and then move on to a couple more and we'd be done, but I started looking and studying Hezekiah Monday and I saw, okay, so we got a bunch of chapters in Chronicles, a bunch of chapters in Kings, a bunch of chapters in Isaiah, and I said, yeah, this one week thing isn't going to work too good. So we're going to spend at least one more week in, with Hezekiah, but uh, we'll just take off this week. Now, if you're looking at the two different passages, King, Second Kings and Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles seems to be a whole lot more about religious revival and how God is at work spiritually in the people of Judah. You look at Second Kings and it seems to be a whole lot more about political situation and the kings who have had them under their power and all those kinds of things. So we'll be looking at that next week, but this week we're going to look at the first three chapters in what I've called the, the whole idea of a massive revival. Um, now, we have ways of describing things um, when they're similar to each other. For instance, we would say he's a chip off the old... There you go, you got it. Uh, she's a spitting image of her grandmother is another one we would say. Or the nut doesn't fall far from the tree, right? Um, <clears throat> now, if we're going to show a difference in something, um, we could say something like as different as black and white. That's one statement. Now, here's one. I want to see if anybody's ever heard of this one. As different as chalk and cheese. That's a, that's a British one I found. Um, and they're definitely different. You know, you don't want to eat the chalk, that's for sure. <clears throat> and you don't want to try to write with the cheese. It doesn't work. And the, the one that we're probably all most familiar with is as different as night and day. And I start that way because really as we look at King Ahaz, who is Hezekiah's father, and Hezekiah, that's how big the difference was. Ahag, Ahaz was wicked and evil, and Hezekiah was the total opposite of that, seeking after God. So we're going to jump in, just hit a couple highlights of Ahaz from chapter 28. Now, chapter 28, verse 19, The Lord had humbled Judah because of Ahaz, the king of Israel, for he had promoted wickedness in Judah, and had been most unfaithful to the Lord. So here's the king of Israel, or of Judah, who's supposed to set the tone spiritually, and what is he promoting in, in, in Judah? Wickedness. That's what he was promoting. Um, matter of fact, at some point then, God even used the northern kingdom, Israel, to come down and take some of the captives from Judah. He also had some people from the Edomites and the Philistines come in and, and take captives out of, out of uh, Judah. And verse 22, it says, In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He had tried to make a deal with Assyria to help keep other people away from him. And the king, he took, the, he took all the money and stuff that he sent, but he didn't help him. So he says, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him, for he thought, since the gods of the king of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me. What? How is this a king of Israel or a king of Judah? I mean, it's just, 
It's crazy. Oh, they beat me, so I'm going to worship their gods. That's essentially what he's saying. And if you look deeply, and we're not going to, but if you do take the time to look at Ahaz, he committed every conceivable act of idolatry you could think of with Canaanite gods and then also the gods of Damascus. He offered sacrifices to those gods, and he um, even did, went so far as to do some of the immoral things that were done in relation to, this, to that, as well as offer his own family members on the altars. Um, so he was wicked and evil in every way you could possibly think. Verse 24, Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and took them away. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods. Shut the temple, stole all the goods from inside of it, and set up places of idol worship all through Jerusalem and all through Judah. That's his legacy. That's who he was. Now just very quickly, again, just kind of fill in our timeline here. All right, so we had, we last week we were with Uzziah, we had Jotham, and then Ahaz, who's Hezekiah's father. In this time frame here, Assyria finally comes and takes Samaria, and, and most of the people in, in Samaria are being taken to other places and resettled. Uh, there are still remnants of uh, the, the Israelites in the northern section of, of Israel, but uh, few and far between. So that's kind of where that's going. Hezekiah then is, is starting to reign right around 715, and then we'll see where it goes with Manasseh after that. <clears throat> Now, we learn from Hezekiah in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and in Isaiah, there's three chapters as well. We have some difficulty with the actual dating, and we have a rough guess sometimes, but it appears, and and this is discussed, and and people go back and forth on it, that um, he he reigned 29 years or 26 years, and and yet it seems like he also had a co-regency with Ahaz. Some people say for around 14 years. So Ahaz was only a king for 16. That meant for 14 years of that time frame, Hezekiah was right there seeing all of this hideous evil that was going on. And that's why the contrast of night and day that we see coming is so important. Others feel that he also then co-reigned with Manasseh at the end of his life, which you start looking at then how the dates and ages of the things work together, it seems to fit a little better. Um, But I can't imagine the way Hezekiah suffered being someone who truly wanted to follow the Lord God, how he suffered as he watched the things his father did and the evil his father committed. And because he was not the king, he was kind of learning the ropes and semi-ruling with him. There's nothing he could do. However, Ahaz died, and we're thankful for that. I'm serious. <laughs> if you want to read some gruesome stuff, go read about Ahaz. So he he passed away, and in verse 1 of chapter 29 of Chronicles, Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and this is the first time this is said about any any king anywhere. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. No other king has had that said about them until this point. There were some 
good kings. We've had good and a little bit of good and, and a little bit of bad. Some of those we've already talked about. Um, so he he gets it in his head that it's time to let's have a revival. Let's change this country back to what it's supposed to be, which is a, pe- a country of, of people who are worshiping God. So he opens up the temple. Uh, and then he calls the priests and Levites and says, you guys need to consecrate yourselves and then you need to purify and consecrate the temple and, and get that thing ready to go. We, we want to reestablish temple worship. Hadn't happened for many, many, many years. And what he's saying is, okay, let's go back to where we're supposed to be as the people of God. And so he gave them that task. Now we don't know all of the details of what that meant. Um, it meant definitely taking out the pagan things that were there. It meant cleansing the evil and those kinds of things through, through the things that God had them do. Um, and then in verse 6 it says, Our fathers were unfaithful. They did in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook Him. They turned away, turned their faces away from the Lord, dwelling places and turned their backs on Him. So he's talking about his father Ahaz in that time frame. He's saying, listen, the, the country turned away from God. We turned our backs on God. And you remember Solomon had always said, those who turn towards the temple and pray with their hearts and, and, and looking towards Jerusalem and the temple, that he, he prayed that they would be, uh, their prayers would be answered. Verse 8 then says, Therefore the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. He has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn. And you can see it with your own eyes. He says, This is why your fathers have fallen by the sword and your sons and daughters and wives are in captivity. All right, So this is way before the Babylonian captivity. But many of them had been taken into captivity by, by Israel, by the Edomites, by the Philistines and others because of the evil that was going on in the time frame uh, when Ahaz was king. So, verse 15 through 17, they work hard, they clean up the temple, because in verse 10 he says, I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. He's talking about renewing the covenant that Moses first brought the people of Israel into relationship with God over. So, that's what he wants to do. So, he said, we have to cleanse the temple, we have to reestablish the priests and the Levites, and we have to get the people ready, and we need to move on this, okay? And this is, when you start looking at this, this is incredible. This is wonderful that he's calling the people to, to revival. Um, <clears throat> now, in verse 15 to 17, they took, they cleansed the temple, they took stuff and they threw it in the Kidron Valley, which is kind of the garbage dump of the city. But this is also where they would throw the idols and the altars and they'd either burn them or grind them into powder. So when you hear the term Kidron Valley, that's what you need to be thinking through. Okay, that's the place where they threw the refuse. And they're throwing these pagan shrines and gods and whatever it is out there and destroying them completely. So that's part of what's going on. Uh, early the next morning, the king gathered the officials together and went up to the temple. So they, they come back and it takes two weeks to consecrate the temple and get it all ready. And they say, hey, king, we're ready to go. It's been cleansed. It's ready. we got some Levites and priests who are ready. So the very next morning then, uh, it's been two weeks from the time he made the announcement, the next morning, King Hezekiah and gathered the city officials together and went to the temple of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven male lambs, and seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom of uh, for the sanctuary and for Judah. The king commanded the priest, the descendants of Aaron, to offer these on the altar to the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls as the, 
and the priests took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Next they slaughtered the rams, they sprinkled the blood on the altar. And then they slaughtered the lambs and sprinkled the blood on the altar. So this is the process of dedicating, rededicating the temple to God. They're, they're making sure that everything is ready to go. All the instruments that have been, they've been cleaned and made, um, made usable again. So this is what the whole process that they're going through. Um, now, as they're sprinkling that blood, remember that this is symbolic for them. They're realizing that, that the animals are dying so that sins can be paid for, sins can be taken care of, um, so that the people themselves weren't paying for their sins. The, the animals' blood was covering that. Verse 23, the goats for the sin offering were brought before the king. So this is a very specific offering that we're talking about. Um, go ahead and put that up there, the sin offering. Um, it's a sacrifice that was made to atone for sin, specifically that. There were other kinds of sacrifices, but this was the one that they were starting out with. All the others were kind of to dedicate and get the temple ready. Now they're starting with the people, and they were going to offer this special sacrifice. Look what they do. The goats and sin are brought before the king and the assembly, and they lay their hands on them. So these goats are brought in. They lay their hands on them. The symbolism of that is that they are, they are trusting God to forgive them through the sacrifice of these lambs, through of these goats. So, so that's what they're doing. The goats are going to be sacrificed, but not before they lay their hands on them to indicate that they believe and trust what God is saying. And that when the sacrifice is done, because of God's promises, the sins will be atoned for through that sacrifice. Um, and so <clears throat> they presented their blood on the altar for a sin offering to atone for all of Israel because the king had ordered that the burnt offering be made for the whole nation. So that's one of the things that was going on. He's saying, okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, and I'm going to have the priest do this, and we're going to bring the nation before God, and it will be individual chance as well at some point. But the sacrificial system was there to enable people to go from being in sin, unclean, to being pure before God and able to, attend, to be in the temple and all those other things. So that was the whole point of the sacrificial system. You don't stay in your sins. You don't continue down this path. It costs you something, but you do the sacrifice. Your relationship with God is now restored, and you move on to the other side. Now you are cleansed and able to move on in the life that God has called you to. Now, this is my question. you got these two weeks when the priests and Levites are working like crazy. If you go back and read it, they're working hard as they clean all of the garbage out of the temple. And I'm talking more about idols and that kind of thing than, than just straight up garbage. But what was Hezekiah doing? He wasn't a priest or Levite, so he couldn't do that. So I came up with this theory of mine. I think he called Daniel. And he said, Daniel, would you work with the musicians and the people who are going to sing? Because we got to get this praise thing going again. Um, I don't think Daniel was there. But I do think that the king was saying to people, hey, we're going to have a dedication service, and we need singers. We need people to play musical instruments. We are going to do this the right way. And I think that's what he was doing during that time. Um, verse 25 to 28, sacrifices started. The praise team there is playing along and singing. And then verse 29, when the offerings were finished, so they had the music playing while sacrifices were being offered, singing while sacrifices were being offered. That part of the service ends, and... Verse 29, they finished, the king and everyone present with him knelt down and worshipped. He knelt down and worshipped God. Then Hezekiah said, you have now dedicated yourselves to the Lord. Come, 
Bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple of the Lord. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all those whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. And so he said, okay, we've done the, we've done the whole thing for the nation. Now you have the right to bring your own offerings and sacrifices to God. You can come and bring a burnt offering, which is a sacrifice. Let's go ahead and put this up there. The burnt offering was an offering, uh, a voluntary act of worship. And that animal was given just because you're so thankful and thrilled that God is your God. Uh, verse 29 says, The burnt offerings were in abundance together with the fat of the fellowship offerings and the drink offerings that accompanied the burnt offerings. So the service of the temple of the Lord was reestablished. Okay? They got the singers, they got the musicians, they got everybody back involved, and they're offering sacrifices again on the altar in the temple of God. Now the thank offering <clears throat> was a sacrifice of thanksgiving and fellowship. And part of what happened with the thank offerings is that the, they would offer a portion of it and the rest of it was shared by the people who brought sacrifice as a just kind of a communal meal. And so when you do the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's a lot of that going on. The offerings are being offered and part of the offering is what the people are eating during, during that time period. So talk about changing from night Today, imagine the horrors of Ahaz and the things that he did and the things that he brought into Jerusalem and the country and the evil. And yet here, four weeks later, four weeks after he dies and Hezekiah takes over, they have cleansed the temple, they have rededicated the temple, they have committed themselves again to God and that relationship with him. All of that has taken place in Hezekiah's first four weeks. And you sit back and you go, wow, how incredible is that? I read the, <clears throat> read the chapter several times and just kept thinking, this is incredible what he has done. And part of that was the Spirit of God brought, put it on his heart. And he was obedient to that. Now what's, what's an implication here for us? Um, verse 23, 29, 23 says, They brought goats and the sin offering, Right into the presence of the king. You can go, there you go, thanks. Um, and the congregation, they laid their hands on them. The priests slaughtered the goats, put their blood on the altar for the sin offering to make atonement for all of Israel. So these sacrifices were looking forward to the day when there would be one last sacrifice of atonement. And that would be Jesus Christ. In this time frame, every time a sin took place, every time something happened, you would have to offer a sacrifice to atone for those sins that had happened. Imagine all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Think of all those things. And all of them were in some way pointing to the fact there is one, one sacrifice coming that will fulfill all the law. One. The writer of the book of Hebrews was talking about that as he was going through and dealing with some of the issues that he was dealing with believers who were wondering, do we go back to the law? Do we go back to the temple? Do we go back to sacrifices? And he kept saying, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the sacrifices. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood. Jesus is better than all of those things. Hebrews 10.11, he says this, Day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But this priest, now speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Ever wonder why there was no place to sit in the temple? Because the work was never done. There was no place for the priests to sit down. No place for the Levites to sit down. They were there to do one thing, and that was to continue to bring the people's sacrifices and prayers and everything before God. And it was an endless thing, day after day after day after day, over and over and over. The same sacrifices. They took care of the problem for right then. But when it happened again, they had to have for another sacrifice. And so they just were over and over and over again. Hebrews 11 says again and again the same sacrifices were offered. And it just never, never took care of the problem. But when this priest, Jesus, the perfect high priest, who was also, by the way, the perfect sacrifice in the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews goes through and, and blends those things together. So yes, he's the, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and at the same time, he's the great high priest like Melchizedek, who is there over the temple, or over God's house. So you're reading along, and you go, he, he, uh, but this high priest offered one sacrifice for all sin, for all time, and sat down. Sat down. Why? The work was done. He would never have to die again. He would never have to have any other sacrifices. His sacrifice was sufficient for every person ever born in the world who would turn in faith and trust him that that was done for them so they could believe Jesus died for them and be saved. That's the whole point of all of it. So when the Hezekiah and the goat and the people put their hands on the goats, they were saying, okay, I'm trusting what God has said. I'm believing what God has said, that when this animal dies for me, I'm okay. And Jesus comes along and says, I died for you. Believe in me, and you'll never have to worry about it again. The sins will be gone, taken care of once and for all. It's interesting because Hebrews 11.6 puts it this way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. He is who he says he is. He is real. And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He gives salvation to those who come and say, I believe. I believe that you did die. That you died for me. And I accept your death as proof that I can be forgiven. I come to you and I, and I ask that you would save me. That's the whole point that was being made. And that's why all of the Old Testament sacrifices and all the rituals and everything were all pointing to one thing. Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, the ultimate high priest, the only one who could die because he was innocent and sinless, who could die for the sins of the world. The only one. And so for anyone today who has never done that, never put their faith or trust in Jesus... That's the challenge. Will you consider that? Will you think through the idea that Jesus died for a reason, for a purpose, and and that's me. He died for me. He died for you. And, And that's where we need to go and say, Lord God, I come and I place my faith and trust in what Jesus did for me. 
And so I challenge you, if that's not something you've ever done, think that through. It's not a fancy prayer. It's not that you have to get your life together and in shape. It's a change of heart from I'm doing my own thing and I want to do what I want to do to Lord, man, I need help and I need to be saved and you're the only one that can do that. And we turn to Him. And that can be done right now, right here. Move on to chapter 30. Hezekiah sent word to all of Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, remember, Samaria has already been taken and many of them have been taken to other places, but there's still a remnant of people in these places who were the Israelites who somehow escaped or, or weren't taken and they're living in little small towns and places on their own. And, and King Hezekiah says, you know what? We need this to be everybody. And so he sends people with letters up into all of those places. And if you read the, what's going on, the couriers take these letters and they ridicule them. It says that in verse 10. And he says, yet, nevertheless, some men from Asher, Manasseh, Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. So when you're thinking about these people, you see those words in these chapters, understand the, the nation of, of Israel is gone. They're all totally gone. There's remnants and little pockets of them in different places, but not an organized country in any way, shape, or form. And so Hezekiah invites them says, hey, come, we're going we're gonna to have the Passover. We haven't done that in years. Now's the time to start. Verse 13 says, A very large crowd assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. It wasn't the exact time that they should have been doing it, but it was the first time they could do it since the temple had been cleansed. And apparently there's still a little bit of house cleaning in in Jerusalem. They removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away all the incense altars and threw them in the Kidron Valley. So now the nation has, uh, you know, in Jerusalem they've taken care of those things. <clears throat> Verse 18, although most of the, most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Isatron, and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. So what was going on here is, it's very possible that some of these people didn't even know about the rituals of purification and the things they needed to do to be able to be clean and eat the Passover. It's possible many of them had never even heard any part of God's law. Because of where they lived. Baal was God in the north. And so that's a possibility. Um, the other thing that I, I'm sure is happening here, you know, most of the people up there ridiculed the messengers. Those that responded, I'm convinced the Spirit of God was saying, hey, this is real. You need to come. And so there were groups of people who came down who were there, and they weren't ceremonially clean like they were supposed to be. And they went ahead and joined in in all of the festivities, and that could have caused some problems because they were disobeying the law even though they didn't know that they were disobeying the law. I love what Hezekiah does in uh, verse 18. Hezekiah prayed for them saying, May the Lord who is good pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even if he's not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. Isn't that incredible? What an amazing prayer. What he's saying is, God, yeah, these people came and they're not really ready according to the rituals and the other things of the law. They're not ready. 
But Lord God, I pray that you won't punish them, but that you will accept them because they've come earnestly seeking you. That's why they're here. And look at God's response. The Lord heard Hezekiah and healed, or actually forgave, is the word there, the people. Um, again, it's that whole idea of being ritually clean and and what that all meant, there were certain things they were all supposed to do to be able to be ready and take place. And, and yet here I love the fact that what God has said through, through Hezekiah's prayer, he said, listen, yes, I would love for you to do these other things, but what I want is your heart. And that's where I want to start. And these people came with a heart that was seeking God. And that's why Hezekiah prays and he prays based on God's goodness and says, Lord, in your goodness, will you Take care of the situation. And the Lord did. There was something going on, but the Lord forgave, and that was, that was it. It was over with. Um, so they have this Passover, and then they went right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a seven-day time with great rejoicing and music and, and all that kind of stuff. They sang praises to God all day long. And they had sacrifices, and they took part in that. <clears throat> and um, they sacrificed... Uh, 2,000 bulls and 17,000 sheep during that time frame. Now, it wasn't just a sacrifice in the sense of sacrificing and burning it all up. It was a sense of sacrificing and then using that as part of the feasts that were going on all around as they were celebrating who God is and what He was doing. Now, they, they did that for seven days. They got to the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they were so full of joy and so happy and excited to be doing what God had called them to do. They said, hey, let's do it for seven more days. And so they did. So for 14 days, they were actually celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 25, the entire assembly of Judah rejoiced along with the priests and Levites and all who had assembled from Israel, including the aliens who had come from Israel and those who lived in Judah. There was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. So remember, Solomon had huge ceremonies with all kinds of things. Well, this is the first time anybody's come close to that. So now he's been compared to David, and he's now being compared to Solomon in Solomon's good days. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, for their prayers reached his holy dwelling. Isn't that amazing? And so you look, I, I was reading and actually listened to this a number of times this week, and I kept thinking, well, this is incredible. What an amazing revival. The whole country is saying, yeah, we want God. We want to come back. And, and that's what they did. And it's kind of an implication quickly here. May the Lord who is good pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking God. Um, I, I love the fact that Hezekiah tapped into the fact that what God was looking for, yes, he ordained and asked for the rituals. But when it came right down to it, what did he want most? The heart. These were people who didn't know about the rituals and the things that had to happen, but they were seeking after God. And God said, I accept that they're coming and seeking after me. And the other stuff, they can, they can learn all that, but right now, I accept them. And so I love the fact that they were then able to be taught the things that were required and were able to keep on going. I love the fact that he starts his prayer with the goodness of God and asks for God's forgiveness for those who had trespassed uh, in these ritual ways. You know, David understood, I think, the mercy and goodness of God in, in ways that maybe many of us don't. Psalm 103 has always been a real favorite of mine. When I think about <clears throat> how I fail the Lord, 
Uh, I think about things that I've said or done. I love Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. It's really great verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. I don't know about you, but that's, I can say amen. And I know for sure that I deserve nothing but God's judgment. But I've got nothing but God's grace and mercy. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As the Father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Imagine if there was someone who came with that group of remnants, people from the north, uh, who didn't have any way of worshiping God at that time, and maybe they'd been involved in some of the horrible activities of Baal worship. Um, after all, that's their nation. Was, that's all they did was worship Baal. Never heard about God's promises, and yet they were drawn as they heard about this special Passover. Maybe they remembered little bits and pieces they, they'd heard from others. And they come and they see the reality of God and His temple. And then they realize that they want a relationship with this God. And that's where all that happens with Hezekiah is so important because he says, God, look at their hearts. And if they're seeking for you, And wanting to follow you, you forgive. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. When we come to him believing that he died for us, that's it. We're forgiven. And David understood that. There's comfort for us every day in that, that he paid the price and our sins are gone. They're no longer there. He forgave and he's forgotten. And we are clean and pure before His eyes. Now, do I struggle every day? Do I have issues I have to work on? Absolutely. Do I have to confess my sin and and get back in fellowship with God? Yes. But in God's eyes, I am perfect and holy because of what Jesus Christ did for me. It's not me that did it, but Jesus who forgave me and made me clean. Let's see if we can't finish up these last verses. Chapter 31. So they've had the the two weeks of the festival, and uh, they've cleaned up Jerusalem, and they've cleaned up the temple, and they've reestablished their relationship with God, and they have reestablished sacrifices, and all of the things are up and running again. And now it's time for people to go back home. And it says in verse 1, When all this had ended, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah and smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles, and destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin, and in Ephraim, Manasseh. After they had destroyed all of them, the Israelites returned to their own towns 
into their own property. Isn't that incredible? One of the things that you hear, if there's a good king earlier in Israel's time frame, it'll say, he, 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 you know, he took care of Jerusalem, but he didn't do anything about the high places. He didn't do anything about the, the pillars and those things were all over. Well, in this case, the people were so moved in their time with God that God laid it on their hearts and they went out of there and said, you know what? No, no more of this Baal stuff. We're getting rid of all of it. And they did. Hezekiah says in verse 2, assigned priests and Levites to div- by division. So he set up an organizational structure following David's pattern where different groups of them would be involved. Uh, the king contributed his, from his own possessions for the morning and evening burnt sacrifices, for the Sabbath sacrifices and the new moon. So he's, he's providing three, four hundred animals per year to keep the temple going and those things. And, and that's his gift that he wants to give from his own income. Um, he ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due the priests and Levites so they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. When the priests and Levites had been kicked out of Jerusalem, they found other jobs. They found places that they needed to work. They went back and started bigger farms. And now Hezekiah is saying, listen, we are supposed to tithe and give to the temple so that that can be dispersed and our priests and Levites can focus on serving the Lord. That's what we want them to do. And the people get all excited about that. The commitment to giving, it takes off. And if you, you read through the chapter, they just get piles and piles of stuff that comes in. It's stacking up all over the temple because they don't have anywhere to put it. But what a great problem to have, more than you need. And so, you know, they, they decide that they're going to go ahead and build some uh, storage places. And then they begin to look through the genealogies to make sure that all of the priests and Levites who were supposed to be serving actually were uh, and then there was the disbursement that started to take place. All of this is part of the organizational structure that Hezekiah put in place so that the temple could continue to function. Again, it's, as you read through it, there's a lot of those kind of details. But verse 20 of the chapter says this. This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. In everything that he undertook, in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. And so he prospered. What a great ending, isn't it? I mean, you got this massive revival that's gone over the whole nation. And now it says, hey, this is, this is a man who is doing good and doing right. And he's faithful before God. And that's kind of what I'm just, our takeaway is going to come from that verse. Verse 20. This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good, what was right, and faithful. And here's the key for me. Go ahead and put that verse up there, Keaton, please. Thank you. He did what was good, right, and faithful before God. Okay, so what he's saying is, he's conscious of the fact that whatever he does, he's doing that in God's presence. He's doing that in God's very presence. No, God may not be visibly standing right there, but God's there. No matter where he goes, no matter what he does, he's doing it in God's presence. And I absolutely love the fact that he understood that. He knew that as he served and as he was faithful and as he obeyed God, he was doing it and God was right there. He was doing it in God's presence. And so he made it his goal to do what was right and good and faithful, knowing that he was doing it before God. 
It's interesting, God spoke to the people of Israel when they had turned away from him. This is after Hezekiah, many years later. And um, some of them had thought they could sin and that God just would not notice or wouldn't know. And this is what he says in Jeremiah 23:23. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? So you think I'm just here some of the time, and then when I'm somewhere else, I'm not really around? Um, the Net Translation, I think, does a little bit better job on capturing what the verse is saying. Do you the people think that I am some local deity and not the transcendent God? In other words, the God who is everywhere. You think I'm just some kind of local deity like Baal? No. No, that's not the case. Do you really think anyone can hide himself where I cannot see him? So you think you can do all those things that you're doing out there and think that somehow you're getting away with it and it's okay? No. The Lord asks, do you know that I am everywhere? So when Hezekiah says, I'm going to do what is right and good and faithful because I'm doing it before God, he understood God's everywhere. I had a friend of mine who was working with a youth group uh, many years ago, and some of the teens of his group had gotten in some pretty, pretty bad stuff. And he had constantly was trying to challenge them and trying to challenge and encourage and praying that God would convict And at one point he was talking with them and he said, listen, if you're sitting in your car with your girlfriend and you're getting to do whatever it is that you had planned, would you carry on if your mother was sitting behind you? And I mean, they went, no, no, absolutely not. Well, you know what? We do everything before God. We do everything in this presence. That's both positive and negative. So if I lose it and, and, and say something unkind to someone, I'm doing that in God's presence. If, if I am able to call someone and encourage them, I'm doing that in God's presence. Whatever it is that we do, we are doing it in God's presence. We're doing it as if he was sitting in the back seat right there with us. Because he is. He is. Another of David's Psalms gives us a great prayer as we end this passage this morning. Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, point out anything in me that offends you, and lead me along the path of everlasting life. May the Lord encourage us today. May he give us a strong sense of his presence. May he remind us constantly that everything we do, we're doing Before Him, we're doing it in His presence. And may that challenge and encourage us to seek after Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the things that we see and we learn from the kings of Judah and Israel. Lord, we long to be those who are living our lives before You consciously knowing that that is what we're doing. Help us to seek to honor you as we live each day in your presence. We ask this in your name. Amen.